Father, thank you for today, for the invitation that you've given us to rejoice this morning. And we do that in you, and we do that wholeheartedly. And Spirit, I pray as we study the scriptures today, would you ignite them in our souls, that the words would come alive, that we'd see Jesus, and that we'd be changed. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. December 20th, 1995, flight 965, American Airlines flight, sat on the tarmac at the airport in Miami. A a thunderstorm had blown through, and so the flight was on a two-hour delay, and pilot Nicholas Tafuri, with 13,000 flight hours under his belt, sat at the helm ready to take off. The flight was going from Miami to Columbia, and it was full of people ready to go visit family back in Columbia for the holidays. It was full of a a few tourists and a few businessmen, but mostly it was families going home for the holidays. As the flight took off and started to navigate through the air, it got closer and closer to the airport in Columbia where it was going to land. There's only one problem with the airport in Columbia. That three years before that flight took off, all the radar towers at this airport in Columbia had been taken down by leftist guerrillas who were absolutely terrorizing the country. And so instead of having the normal radar system that airports do these days, they were operating on a radio system that was a bit archaic for the time. And something happened in the exchange of information between um, the pilot, Nicholas Deferi, and the base down at the airport in Columbia. There was some mis-exchange of information, and so the airplane that was supposed to be in one valley was actually a valley over that ran parallel to that valley. And about 28 miles away from the landing strip at the airport in Columbia... Flight 965, American Airlines, ran smack dab into the middle of a mountain. Out of the 163 people on board, 159 of them perished on the side of that hill. And what they did is they went back and sort of tried to reimagine what happened and try to prevent it from ever happening again. What they said was that the flight was going well until the approach, until the landing 
And they're 28 miles out, which is not a long distance when you're flying in an airplane. They were, they were right there, but the, the approach was what absolutely killed them, literally. I started to wonder how the approach in our lives may be similar. Do you know you have an approach to life? You have a way that you view life. We could call that an approach. You have a, a system of beliefs that you operate within. You have, a, you have a narrative that plays in your head 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Do you know that? It's the way that we view life. It's the beliefs that we hold, the dreams that we cherish, the things that we long for, and the things that we seek after. It's, it's an approach. It's a way that we go about living. And for some of us, the approach that we have is yielding great joy. And for others of us, the approach that we have is just ripping life out of our hands. For some of us, our approach is built around making as much money as we possibly can, hoping that that'll fulfill us. For some of us, our approach is protecting a family that we dearly love. For some of us, our approach to life, the way we see all of life is by being as healthy as we possibly can in hopes that we might live to be a hundred or even older. What's your approach to life? What's the thing that drives you? What's the way that you view the world? If you could summarize it in, in just one sentence, what would it be? It may be the most important question you're asked all week. And here's why. Here's why. Because the truth of the matter, friends, is that our approach to life determines our aptitude for joy. The way that we go about living determines whether or not we walk in the, the fullness of the joy that God designed us for. See, so many people think that the way that we experience joy or the, what determines our quotient or our level of joy in our life is based on the immediate circumstances that we live in. But science is continually, sociologists are continually proving that that's absolutely untrue. In 1978, they did this famous study where they took two sort of focused groups of people. One of the groups of people were people that had recently won the lottery. The other focus group was people who had been in terrible accidents and have, had come away either paraplegics or quadriplegics, changed forever. And they asked them a series of questions over the months that followed, either their accident or their winning. And you know what they found? They found that there was zero, no measurable difference in the happiness of those who had won the lottery and in the happiness of those who had been in a terrible accident and been left completely different for the rest of their lives. Is that not fascinating? So it turns out that what happens to you in life has very little bearing on whether or not you're happy. What happens to you in life has very little bearing on whether or not you walk in joy. What happens to you in life is not, is not the determining factor on whether or not you drink in the joy that God intended for you. Here's what determines whether or not you taste that joy. It's your, say it with me, church, approach. It's the way that you look at life. 
It's the filter that everything comes through. And here's what I'd like to propose to you today. I'd like to propose that maybe we do some analytical work on what our approach is. And there's a few areas that the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians is going to push on our approach. And what he's going to subtly say is, hey, the way that you're going about this is not leading you to the place you want to be. And you know that deep down inside. And with a few minor changes, everything could change. Philippians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, will you open there with me? Philippians chapter 3, as we continue our study in this wonderful letter that Paul wrote from prison, from house arrest in Rome, he's writing about 12 years after planting a church in Philippi and seeing it flourish and seeing it grow. He's writing back to his friends. He's writing back to people who he had walked alongside of for a good deal of time to this church that he's seen planted, and he's going to write back, and he wants to encourage them and Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you again is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Don't you love that Paul is a quintessential preacher? He's like, I'm not afraid to repeat myself, because you need to get it. If he had more parchment, he probably would have wrote that. Parentheses, I have no trouble writing this again because you, church, we need to get it. Sixteen times in the letter, he will use some derivative of this word. Joy, rejoice. In the very first message we gave on the letter to the Philippians, I proposed to you that there's really no tangible, negligible difference in the scriptures between the word joy and the word happiness. Now, some of you pushed back on that, which, can I just say, as your pastor, I love. I love. I invite it any time, because it means you're listening. <laughs> I'll take it. It means you're engaged. And so I'm not going to belabor that point. I don't think you can make a case in Scripture for there being a difference between joy and happiness. And here's how I will invite you to maybe reimagine whether or not you think that's true. As you do a study on the word rejoice in the Scriptures, here's what rejoicing looks like in the Scriptures. Singing, shouting, laughing, gladness. Turns out rejoicing looks a lot like happiness. <laughs> in fact, we are called to rejoice in temporal circumstances. Because that's been the big pushback, right? Joy is something eternal. Happiness is temporal. Well, it turns out rejoicing happens on a daily basis simply because God made today. Psalm 118, 24. Right? Rejoicing happens at a response. In heaven rejoices at a response of sinners repenting, Luke chapter 15, verse 10. It's a party, rejoicing is. And so Paul will write, rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. So here's the deal. You don't have to pray about it. Is it God's will for you to rejoice? Yes. How do I know that? Well, the scriptures are really clear. They're really clear. It's a command. Therefore, therefore, look up at me for a second. 
It's a choice. Rejoicing is. It's a choice. I love the way that Henry Nouwen, the great author and spiritual director, puts it. He says, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every single day. Amen. Abraham Lincoln, one of our greatest presidents, arguably, said, most folks are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's a command. And you know why it's a command? It's because it's not natural. The most natural thing that could happen to you and to me is to allow our joy quotient to be determined by our circumstances, to be determined by everything that happens around us and everything that happens to us. But Paul says, no, 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 God has, God has better for you than that. So he says, first, rejoice. And then he gives you the source of this ability to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Right, that, that God, Yahweh, the king above it all, is the giver of this joy, is the sustainer of that joy, is the culmination of that joy. And so here's, here's the deal. If you're, you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we are so glad that you're here. We are so glad that you're here. The joy that Paul's talking about, though, is available only in the Lord. It's something that's available as we know Jesus by faith and step into the promises of God. That's the kind of joy that he's talking about. That's the kind of happiness that he longs for this church to have. And can we just admit for a second, if Paul can say this from jail, we might be able to say it in whatever circumstance we're in. And the last thing he says about it, he says, okay, I'm, I don't mind repeating myself. It's that important. And then he says this rejoicing it's safe for you. So in the Greek, it would be this picture of it's trustworthy. It's reliable. You're not going to walk out into this life of joy and it's gonna, the bottom's going to fall out of you. That's not going to happen. In the NIV, and I believe the NAS, it says that it's a safeguard for you. And so I know there's some people here today and you're going, well, Here's what's going on in my life, Paulson. I just got a call from the doctor. Can I, is this possible for me? Is this, is this safe for me? Because it feels like I'm going to get my hopes up and they're going to be dashed. Feels like I'm going to long for things that just aren't going to happen. Is joy safe? Can we have this approach to life and have it sustain us and not let us down? And what Paul would say to the church at Philippi is absolutely the joy that you find in the Lord will not fail you. Because it's built on something that transcends you. It's built on something bigger, more beautiful. It's not something that we get from him. It's something that we find in him. He invites every single follower of Jesus to. This, friends, is the approach that he invites us as his followers to have. One, joy is a command and it is a choice. Two, our joy is found distinctly in the Lord. And three, it is safe to step out on that ledge. But 
look out. <laughs> I mean, that's what follows. That's the very next word. So I did a ton of study on this section of scripture, and most of the commentaries I look at com- looked at completely detached verse 1 from the rest of this thought. And I'm going, well, no way. This look out is directly tied back to rejoice. And what Paul wants the church to be aware of, what he wants this church in Philippi to be aware of, and what I'd love for us to be aware of in addition to that is that there are thieves of our joy. There are joy stealers. You know them well. Paul knew them well. And what he wants to do is he wants to say to the church in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out. Because there's a whole lot of people proposing a whole lot of different approaches to life. And those approaches to life will ultimately fail. Because, friends, there are joy stealers in life and there are also joy sealers in life there are things that have the ability to rip joy happiness gladness delight pleasure right out of our hands and there are things this is not just a bad news this there are things that allow us to live in the fullness of the way that god designed us to live There are approaches to life that yield this joy that Paul is talking about. So for the next few minutes, what I'd love to do is just point out from the scriptures what approach Paul is inviting the church at Philippi to have that will eventually yield their joy because the approach you have to life will always determine your aptitude for joy. It always will. So here's what he says. Look out for the dogs, which isn't a compliment, okay? Look out for the evildoer. I mean, this letter has a little bit of an edge to it. Are you catching that in Paul's writing? He's not, this isn't a cordial, hey, just, you might want to, you might want to keep an eye out for these people. No, it's look out for the dogs. Evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul's like, let me brag a little bit. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And see, Paul sort of looks at it in two different categories. He looks at it in just saying, listen, I had it all together in the family that I was born into and in the way that I lived. Both, I I had attacked it on both levels and I stuck the dismount. Eighth day. Just like the law commanded, I was circumcised. My parents were good Jews. Of the tribe of Benjamin, it's important because it was the tribe that the very first king of Israel came from. That king's name was Saul, right. And Paul's name before he became Paul was Saul, right, right. So his family is in this lineage of hope. They are in the covenant of God. 
really, really good things. He then says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Most scholars think that what he means by this is that his parents did not give in to the pressures of the day to turn towards Hellenization and to adapt Greek culture. They remained Hebrew people in the midst of persecution and difficulty and hardship. Paul goes, listen, the road was set for me And not only was the road set for me in the way that I was born, but in the way that I lived. I was a Pharisee. It was one of the three main sects of Judaism in that day. They were strict keepers of the law. There was this sort of rumor amongst the Pharisees that if one of them could keep the law perfectly for a day, that Messiah would come. Ironically, the fact that they couldn't keep Torah for a day meant, meant that Messiah came. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, I mean, just read Acts chapter 8, you see Paul and his zeal for persecuting the church, for taking down what he viewed at that time as something that ran completely contrary to the way of Yahweh as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It doesn't mean he thinks he was perfect. It means that he did everything he needed to do based on the sacrificial system to come before God in holiness and righteousness. He goes, hey, I had confidence in the flesh, confidence in the flesh, confidence in the flesh. (laughs) I mean, think of if Paul at the end of his life were to say the same thing. I mean, Well, I I seem to have written about 31.8% of the New Testament. Planted 14 churches at least. Spread the gospel onto multiple new continents. And if Paul says, I put no confidence in the flesh with that resume, I'm just going to throw it out there. But maybe, just maybe, your resume isn't as good as his. And that the conclusions he comes to may apply to us today. See, here's the approach that changes in the Apostle Paul's mind. He changes from approaching God in confidence in the flesh to by faith in Christ. We could summarize it just really simply like this. That his approach changed rather than trying to encounter God through his achievement. That he encounters God simply... By acceptance. Not by his work, but by the work of Christ. And that changes everything for Paul. See, every single person in this room, I would argue, is operating either in the mode of achievement when it comes to a relationship with God or the mode of acceptance, but there are only two ways of interacting with him. It's either I can do this and I can make a way and I can climb the ladder Or the latter's there because God has climbed down to me in the person and work of Jesus, displayed his love through the cross, invited me, a sinner, back into a right relationship with God, and it is simply by faith because of grace that I can have a relationship with him. There's only two ways of looking at this, you guys. And Paul says, for a long time in my life, I tried to approach God through achieving, and it let me down every single time. So, Look out. Look out, South Fellowship. Because this has the ability to sneak in. Where we start thinking, all right, God, 
Maybe just maybe you'll be a little bit more pleased or a little bit more happy with me if I read my Bible and say my prayers and serve in children's ministry. And if I do all these things, God, that are great things that I would recommend you do, so long as you realize it purchases you absolutely nothing with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. When I start to, because we have this thing in us that longs to sort of go back to achievement. It feels safe to us. God, if I can stand before you and tell you, well, here's what I did. It feels like it's a, it's a good, um, just a safeguard for us. When it happens in my life, here's how I started to recognize it. And there's three ways that I see it in my life. One is I feel like I start to deserve things from God. And the scary part about that is, is I only recognize I'm doing that when he doesn't come through on his end of the bargain. God, I'm obeying, and God, I'm serving, and God, I'm doing, and why didn't you fill in the blank? Second way I see it in me is I compare myself to others. Because here's what achievement is based on. Achievement is based on how well I'm doing compared to you, I've done a little bit better. I've done a little bit more. I'm, I'm, I'm not as bad as them, as if that's the barometer to have a relationship with Jesus. The third thing is if I'm operating in an achievement mode, and if you're operating in an achievement mode, we have zero ability to look honestly at ourselves and say, I'm blowing it here. And I fall short. So when we operate in achievement, what we tend to do is we tend to lie to ourselves. Because we have to protect the image that's going to get us right with God. And if we say I'm a failure and I've messed up and I'm broken and I let myself and everybody around me down again. If this is our approach, we are unable to say that because our acceptance by God is based on our achievement. Here's the good news of the gospel, friends. is that you, The gospel is not how awesome you are, it's how glorious he is. And it's not that you've done anything that could deserve him loving you. It's that he stepped out of eternity and purchased for you redemption in the person and work of Jesus based on absolutely nothing that you did. And so Paul will write to the church at Ephesus. He'll say, and now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you worked yourself closer. No, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, when you stand before the throne of God, that will be our only anthem, that will be our only song, is praise be to the Lamb of God who was slain on my behalf. Your resume is not going with you. Praise the Lord. His is. That's the gospel. That's what we circle around. And if that's the internal dialogue that we have of I'm accepted in the Almighty because of Jesus, it doesn't just change the way that we approach life. It changes every single relationship that we have. Because you do know that the way that you view yourself is what you impose on everybody else. So if you operate based on achievement... Your expectation is that everybody else around you operates based on achievement, right? So as a parent, if I could just speak into our lives as parents for a second, 
to just press on us of how important it is for us to get this. At best, if we operate in achievement, at best, we will raise moralistic Pharisees. At worst, we will raise people who want absolutely nothing to do with Jesus because they know they can't live up to the standard. Okay, deep breath. I'm, I'm passionate about that. So is the Bible. So. Verse 7, here's the way Paul continues. So he's laying out this approach. Remember that the approach that we take in life determines our aptitude for joy. And you've all sensed this. I've sensed this. When we approach God based on achievement, there is no joy. But, so Paul's going to lay out a different way of looking at things. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything. How many things? Everything. Lost compared to, because of the surpassing greatness, uh, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Just stop there. He uses this word, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's two primary words for know in the Greek New Testament. One is oida. Will you say that with me? Oida. The other is gnosko. Will you say that with me? Gnosko. Oida would be the type of knowledge you could get by reading a book. You could learn and you could mine and you could understand the way things operate. Gnosko is intimate first-hand knowledge of. It's experiential. Any guesses on which word Paul uses here? Gnosko. It's the, I have known Jesus. Um, see, when a husband and wife know each other, sometimes they have kids. It's that type of knowledge, okay? It's that type of intimate exchange of, and Paul's saying, listen, I have known Christ. It's a different, it's not, I've known about Christ. It's not, I've studied everything and I've learned all the doctrine, which isn't a bad thing. It's just different than knowing him. You know this. You know you could read every single book out there on World War II. You could read about storming the beaches of Normandy on December 7th. You could understand everything about it. And yet, it's not the same as being there, is it? The question I think Paul would push back on us is, what's our approach to God? Are we trying to know about God or are we longing to know it's two different approaches. To know Jesus cognitively, to know Jesus intimately. We have, you live in a time and place, friends, where there has never been so much information available to you at your fingertips. And I want to affirm that is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. But there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. And I think part of the temptation of our day and time is because information is so accessible that we can exchange those two things rather easily and we can substitute knowing about God for knowing God. And when we do that, what it creates is a whole lot of churches full of people who could answer you questions about Bible trivia and they could wreak havoc in Bible sword drills, but they do not look anything like Jesus. Because they haven't known him. And I long for us to be the type of people who don't just know about him, 
but who know him. See, here's what, I think what Paul, one of the realizations Paul comes to is that knowing Jesus is not a means to an end. He's coming to this place where he's going, I'm sitting in jail, I'm wrestling with why I'm here, and yet, and yet, knowing Jesus is better. Knowing Jesus is more. Knowing Jesus isn't a means to an end so I can rip something out of God's hand that I really want. Knowing Jesus is the end. It is the end. So John will write in John chapter 17, verse 3, that knowing him is salvation. It is salvation. It's not something we get from him. It's an invitation we get to walk with him. Let me give you, and I'm going to, admittedly, I'm going to fly through this, but I wanted to answer the question, how does this actually happen? How do we know Jesus intimately? How do we get beyond the, the two dimensions of the page and get into life with God? I'm glad you asked that. Let me give you four things. And I'm going to fly through these, and I'll write a blog post this week. You can check it out for more info, okay? One, we embrace obedience fully. John chapter 14, verse 21, would say very clearly to us that if we do not obey him, we do not know him. And so we jump in wholeheartedly into obedience. Second is we abide with Jesus intentionally. The command to abide in me in John chapter 15 is not a suggestion, number one, it's a command. And it takes effort to say, I'm going to live my life in the rhythms of grace I'm going to live my life with an, inter- with an internal dialogue that engages the spirit that is alive in me. It will not happen by accident. Three, we encounter the spirit intentionally or personally. We encounter the spirit personally. Do you know, as a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. This is one of the greatest gifts we have. Jesus even suggested it was better for him to go away and to disappear so that the Spirit could come and abide in you. Think of how huge of a statement that is. And then the last thing we do, so we embrace obedience fully, abide with Jesus intentionally, encounter his Spirit personally, and we seek an encounter with God fervently. We long to know him personally. See, Paul is not saying in this passage, I want to be a better person. Paul's saying, I've met Jesus. And that changed everything. And that changed everything. Okay. But whatever was to my gain, so this is the third dimension that starts to change in our life, approach that changes. But whatever gain I had, I, say it with me, church, I counted as lost. Now, it's going to be this accounting term that's going to sort of flow out of this passage. The word account simply means to look intently at. So Paul's stepping back from his life and going, I'm just, I'm looking at things now, and I'm looking at them differently. Whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I've lost all things, and I count, or I look at, or I consider them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Here's what he's doing. He's putting life on this weighing scale. 
He's going, there's a whole bunch of things I built my life on. There's a whole lot of achievements that I had that I thought were good, that filled me up to a certain extent. And then I met Jesus. (laughs) And it changed the way I measured everything. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, how are we measuring life? How are we measuring success in life? How are we measuring our significance? How are we measuring what we long for? Paul says, listen, I'm looking at everything differently. I think he echoes what Socrates so famously said, that the unexamined life is unworth living. Paul's saying, I'm asking myself some really serious questions. Did the things that I invested time and energy and money and passion into yield any joy in my life? And he goes, no, not when I compare it to Christ. Not when I stepped into relationship with Jesus. Everything else pales in comparison to that. So the question is, is our approach for a worthless goal, things that will eventually let us down? Or is it based around a worthy pursuit? Paul uses this word, in the Greek, it's the word scubalone. Will you say that with me? Scubalone, thank you. Yeah, um, and it is the word that you see here, rubbish. Literally, um, it, the King James translates that word as dung. It's garbage. It's, um, in an ancient city like Philippi or Rome where Paul was, overcrowding was a huge issue. I mean, cities were packed to the brim. And you might very well imagine that their sewer system wasn't quite that developed. In fact, what people would do is that they would take sewage and they would just put it out into the street and let gravity do its best work. And what they would call that sewage that would run downhill, eventually hitting a bay or a a pile somewhere, they would call that sewage scubalone. And Paul says, listen, I put these things on the scale. It's as close as we get to a swear word in the New Testament. I mean, it's, you're trying to drive in a nail and you hit your thumb, scubalone! That's, that's the feel, right? You're welcome. Every high schooler in here, you're welcome. You're welcome. But Paul's going, listen, I started to evaluate things. I put things on the scale and it just didn't add up that Jesus was better than it all. And so he goes on to say, I lost all things. So here's what Paul does. Paul looks at his life decides what's really valuable, identifies what success is, and he cuts anchor with every other contingency plan he had. See, if we are going to be followers of Jesus, we must do the same. It's not just Jesus plus whatever else we're building our life on. It's Paul reorienting his life around, this is what's really important to me, and I am all in on And friends, when we prioritize our time, our money, our relationships, when we prioritize the things that God's brought into our life in a way that honors him, there's two things that start to happen. One, we actually give value to the things that matter. Imagine that. And when we do this work of really orienting our life around these things, those are the things that we end up holding on to in the storms of life. They are. They're the things we build our life on. I saw this picture that went viral on the internet a number of weeks ago. 
I saw this picture of a, a woman in, um, in Taiwan. She's in the middle of a typhoon. And so much so that her umbrella is turning inside out. And this picture went crazy around the internet because while there's a typhoon that killed a number of people, she has her pork bun securely in her hand. <laughs> and I thought, man, that's a, what, that's a picture of priorities, is it not? My house might not be there when I get back, but this pork bun's going down, right? Okay, it's maybe not the same, but I, what does it look like to prioritize Jesus, to say it's better to be in jail with Jesus than to be out of jail without him? I mean, man, you guys, does he have that kind of value in our life? To quote the great missionary Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can not earn. And I just want to encourage you out of this passage to do some counting in your life, to take account, to look at, to examine, are there things I'm building my life on that are eventually going to let me down? Maybe that's a conversation you have in the car ride home. Here's how Paul lands the plane, and we're willing into. He says, in order that I may gain Christ, and then verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, and that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, listen, my whole life found its purpose, found its anchor, found its roots in the reality, not that I've been able to find myself, but that I am found in him. He goes, I'm not looking outside anymore. I'm just looking at who Jesus is and the fact that he's invited me to be a child of the most high God. Paul uses this phrase, in him, 164 times in his letters in the scriptures. By contrast, the word Christian, which is how we would primarily define one who follows the way of Jesus, it's used three times. So he's going, listen, my life can be summarized in these two words. I am in him. And the approach has changed. Rather than looking deep down inside himself to find something good, he's looking to Jesus, who invites him in. And he says, because of that, because I'm in him, I have righteousness, that he has taken our sin and our shame and given us his righteousness. That There's a resurrection power that starts to flow from our lives. And there is a resurrection reality. Look at verse 11 with me again. That by any means possible, that he might become like him in death and that by any means possible may attend, attain to the resurrection of the dead. Look up at me for a second, friends. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is your destiny. That one day, God will speak life into your dead bones. That you will walk out of the grave. As Paul would say to the church at Colossae, you have died 
And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him. I just want to invite you every day to think about that day. <laughs> you are in him. It changes everything. So what approach do you have? You're interacting with God based on acceptance or based on achievement? Is your longing to know about him or to know him? I mean, are the things you're chasing after worthy of your life? And hey, is your quest to find out how to help yourself or to say to God, I'm lost unless I'm found in you? We have a ministry here that you may not know of. Um, after every single message, Sharon Motzner types up a transcript of what I say on this stand. Pray for her. And we post it along with uh, the messages online. So you can get audio, you can get video, and you can read every single message that we've given for the last year or so since we started doing this. One of our members, Fred Kress, um, after hearing the very first message that we gave in this Philippians series, took the transcript of that and sent it to his brother who's in jail in Massachusetts. His brother got that sermon, read through it, and started to pass it around to everybody in this jail. His brother writes back to him and says, I need you to send me two copies. I need, you, I need one to keep as an original, and then the other one I want to send around because the guys are writing this down. And a few weeks ago, he got a letter back, and I just want to read it um, so that you can see the way that the scriptures still change lives. He says this, Dear Fred, this is from a, a guy in jail in Massachusetts. Dave showed me the sermon you sent to him. I personally wanted to write you a little letter to say thank you. Reading about Paul's jail experience and how he reacted was a complete turnaround for me. A lot of us are depressed and stressing out because of our cases and how our lives may be affected when we get out. The sermon, or I would just say the scriptures, gave me a 180 degree change on my lookout on this time. Now is the perfect time to get close to and start our long journey with Jesus and our Lord. Thank you very much. And I would say, friends, why wait? Let's not require that God put us in a place where we're so confined to say, God, we're going to respond to your word. Jesus, thank you for being a God who loves us, who pursues us, who accepts us because of your blood, who changes us. And Lord, our desire today is to live in a way that would honor you. We want to approach life in such a way that we would drink deeply of the joy that you have for us. So Lord, if there's something off in our hearts and in our soul today, we just want to lay it down before you. And we want to ask that you would work and that you would move and that you would change us. 
for every person in here. Lord, would you just put your finger on one way in their heart and their life that you would want them to take and apply your scriptures? That we may not just be hearers of the word, but that we may be doers and so walk in the life of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen.